You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Amen. So we continue on in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and this passage in particular has special significance to me. Um, Before we went on our trip to Israel, um, those of us who got to go some years ago, um, the facilitator of that trip, Dr. Ron Allen, asked me if I would like to do a little devotion, a little Bible study, when we would be out on the Sea of Galilee. And so I said, no, I'm not interested in that. Yes, of course. I said, sure, I would love to do that. And this is the passage that I was able to do. So this is very special to me. Um, As we talk about this story and enter the story, just to give you a little geography here, just so we're all on the same page and to kind of set the table for where we're going here, um, this is a map that I stole from Gary Brashear's PowerPoint last week. Don't tell him, but here it is. And where we were last week was in the feeding of the 5,000, as you can see here on that part of the Sea of Galilee shore. And where our story is going to take place is where you see the red X. And that will make more sense as we get into this. But really, this story is about the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they're probably crossing it in a boat not unlike this. And I shared this with you earlier in the Matthew series. But in the 1970s, the Sea of Galilee went through an unprecedented season of drought, and the water levels dropped to, to levels that no one in recorded history had ever noticed or taken note of, taken note of before, and it revealed this. This is a 2,000-year-old first-century boat. So this is the type of boat that the disciples would have been in as we read this story, miraculously preserved in the mud. They literally um, engineered a way to get it up on shore and built this museum around it to preserve it. It's just amazing. But when we're talking about the disciples being in a boat in a storm, that's what they were in. This is the boat that we were in, a little bit safer, a little bit bigger. And this is the boat that we were in when we went out on the Sea of Galilee. And so I was able to lead a devotion in this very passage in the very place that this story we're going to read about today actually took place in some 2,000 years ago. So this is a very significant story to me, and I hope because of the truth that is embedded and captured and proclaimed in this story that it will be meaningful for you as well. So again, the setting, if you weren't with us last week, Gary helped us understand that John the Baptist had just been executed by Herod the not-so-great, and... um, Jesus, assumably, was withdrawing with the disciples to do business with that, to have a time of prayer and solitude. The crowds found them, and the crowds wanted Jesus to touch them, to heal them, to speak to them, and so He did. And they put in this really long day of of being with the crowds and all these healings and miracles and what have you, and they were tired by the end of the day, and yet the people were still there at the end of the day. And everybody was hungry. And remember, this is what we looked at last week. For those of you who were here or watched online, Jesus performed this incredible miracle of feeding thousands and thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and and a couple of fish. And so now he sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up on a mountain to pray. And that's where we pick up the story for today. So immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
So later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Such a remarkable, amazing story. So let's begin to work our way through it. So it's the end of a really long day. You ever had a long day where you're exhausted emotionally? physically, maybe even mentally, and you just want to be left alone. Jesus had that kind of a day, and then some, as he's healing all these people and performing all these amazing miracles. He's tired, and so he withdraws by himself, but he goes to pray, which is remarkable to me, because when I have a day like that, honestly, Prayer is not usually the first thing I will turn to. And I think, as we'll see in Jesus' daily rhythms, he models for us this this life, this lifestyle of prayer, of, of constant, deliberate communication and communion with the Father. And I think right out of the gate, there's something there for you and me. In fact, it's one of the many things I appreciate about the emotionally healthy curriculum, the emotionally healthy spirituality that a number of you have gone through, the emotionally healthy discipleship that a number of you are in right now. It helps us make time, once again, to find God not only in the rhythms of our life, but to set aside deliberate times of prayer and connecting with Him throughout the day, not just one time or occasionally, but in an ongoing way. And Jesus models that for us. He models that intimacy with the Lord. So it says later that night, the disciples had entered the boat and were rowing their way across and not getting real far. Because embedded in the story, although it doesn't say it explicitly, it is saying that they encounter another storm. And it's a windstorm. And when the wind blows over water, what happens? The waves get bigger and stronger. And they're going nowhere real fast. Many years ago, in our student ministry at my old church, one of the things that we built up really over the course of the entire year was this outreach program that we called called, called Raft Rally that um, was where we'd take as many students as we could take with us and who wanted to sign up, high school students, down to Wasco County Fairgrounds, and we would raft the Deschutes for a week. And in there, we'd get them away from all the busyness and noise and distractions that, are, that is our culture, especially today, 
we talk to them about Jesus and introduce a number of them to Jesus for the first time, and a number of them would choose to follow Jesus. And I remember this one year, we decided to raft a portion of the Deschutes that we hadn't ever done before. We took the access road as far down as we could till it came to an end, and then we put our rafts in there, and we began to float the rest of the way. And um, it was about an eight-hour float. It was an all-day float to um, I-84 where um, the Deschutes empties into the Columbia. So all that being said, there's not a lot of whitewater. There's just a lot of sitting on the raft and paddling. And we came to this one canyon where we were to learn later the wind always blows, and it always blows really hard. And it's about two-thirds of the way into the day. It's the hottest part of the day. You've been rowing for hours. And now you hit this canyon, and it's a long canyon, and the wind was blowing so hard, our rafts were actually going backwards on the river because the current was so slow there. And the winds picked up, and we had multiple boats on the river that day, and to the length of this canyon, you could see all these rafts that were against shore. No one was out on the river because we couldn't go anywhere. And we had been rowing for hours, and the last thing we wanted to do was to row in this windstorm. Again, this is a little detail embedded in this story, but at this point, the disciples have been rowing for about nine hours, and they are still in the middle of the lake and going nowhere fast. Where is Jesus is the question of the hour. And so finally, Jesus comes to them after these hours and hours of rowing, still a major windstorm. And ironically, Different than Matthew 8 when they were in a storm together, remember, and Jesus was in the boat as they were crossing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and um, they were afraid of the storm, and understandably so. Ironically, they're not afraid of this storm. They're afraid of Jesus because of how He comes to them, and they think they've seen a ghost. Now, in Jewish superstition of the time, we also know that it was often thought in Jewish thinking, that if you saw a ghost at night, you weren't only in trouble because you saw a ghost, but it was a sign that absolute disaster was about to come upon you. So this was like a worst-case scenario. They think they've seen a ghost, and they think they've seen a ghost at night, and they're out in the middle of this windstorm with the waves. They're going nowhere, and Jesus is nowhere to be found, and understandably, they are afraid. And what does He say? Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Many scholars believe, and I, I, it makes sense to me, that that word choice there is very deliberate. Because another way to translate it is I is I am, which would have been a direct hyperlink connect all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, where God reveals Himself and says, I am. It is a profound statement of identity, and I think it was deliberate on Jesus' part. He reassures them of who He is and His identity. And it's at that point that Peter has the incredible courage to ask to get out of the boat and to walk on the water. And I think it's significant that Peter's faith and recognition of the identity of Jesus, Jesus' true identity, not a ghost, Jesus, is what gives him the courage to have the faith to get out of the boat. It's when he saw Jesus and saw him for who he really is 
that he had the courage to do what he did. And it is remarkable courage for him to get out of the boat. In fact, Matthew is the only gospel writer who captures this detail of, of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water. But it says when he saw the wind, he was afraid. So when did he become afraid? Not just when he saw the waves and the wind, but when he took his eyes off of Jesus. When you and I do that in a storm, that's when we lose perspective and often give in to fear as well. And to their credit, they recognize, at least in part, who Jesus is. And it's finally beginning to sink in in their spiritual journey that Jesus really is who he says he is. And they worship him and declare him to be the Son of God. Once again, Matthew's the only one who captures this detail for us in this telling of the story through his and the other Gospels. And it's a profoundly important defining moment for them to recognize who Jesus is. So, so, so much rich, practical application for you and me out of this out of this passage. And here's the first. Jesus is Lord of the storm, and he goes with us into the storm. Now, there's some realities here that we have to do business with. The way Mark's gospel account is written, and John's for that matter, of this same story, makes it pretty clear that Jesus knew he was sending them into a storm. When he told them to cross the lake, he knew a storm was coming for them. That's interesting. But Jesus really has said the same thing to you and me. There's a storm coming. Actually, multiple storms. Because in John 16, Jesus said, In this world, you will have sunny spring days, <laughs> just like today in Oregon. No, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, and this is my favorite part of that verse, I have overcome the world. Jesus knowingly sends them into a storm, but it does not say he knowingly sends them into a storm alone. He goes to them. He meets them in the storm. I think the same is true for us. But it doesn't always feel that way. Are, are you in a storm this morning? A relational storm of some kind in your life? A storm that you're caught in the middle of in your marriage? A financial storm? A storm at work? A storm with your health, your mental health, your emotional health, your, your physical health. The reality is, because we are broken people living in a broken world, if you're not in a storm, you will be. And what we need to remember, for those of us who know and love Jesus, is that even though it may feel like it at times, you are never in a storm alone. But there's more to it than even that. Let's enter the story once again. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking as they're in this storm? 
Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus when they need him? What is he doing? When is he going to come? How is he going to come to us? How is, how is he going to get to us out here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? And we could really use his help right now. You ever felt like that? You ever been in a storm and wondered, God, what in the world are you doing? Where are you? When are you going to come? When are you going to do something? But Jesus was doing something, even when he wasn't with them. What was he doing? What was he doing all night? He was praying. Now, was he praying for them going into the storm, being in the midst of the storm? I personally believe he was. We don't know that for sure. It doesn't tell us that, but I think he was. But this is what we do know with what he's doing for you and me now in the storms that we are in. And Scripture declares this over and over again. I'll just give you two examples. This is out of Romans chapter 8, and it's talking about how God is so for us. He wants to rescue us from our brokenness. He wants to make us into the people He created us to be. And as it talks about that incredible salvation, it goes on to say this, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, catch this next part, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What is Jesus doing right now? He's interceding on your behalf and mine. He's acting on your behalf and mine. He and the Father together are collaboratively working for our good. And yes, when we're in a storm, they are praying strength for us. I absolutely believe that. It goes on to say in Hebrews, he's able to save completely, and it's talking about Jesus, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Recognize and appreciate that Jesus did not come to them to this, in the storm the way they were thinking he would, when they thought he would, how they thought he would, but he did come, and the same is true for you and me. There will be times if you're not in one of those times right now, when you will feel completely alone, when you will wonder, where are you, Jesus? Are you doing anything? When are you going to come? How are you going to come? What are you going to do? When are you actually going to do something? Well, he already is. He's already interceding for us with the Father. He's already at working even when we can't see it because Jesus is always looking for faith. He was looking for faith in the disciples. He was looking for faith in Peter, and he looks for faith in us. Which is pretty remarkable. Because think about what's behind that. Think about that in the context of those very verses we just read. Yes, as disturbing as this may feel at times, it is a reality, and Scripture talks very clearly about it. There are times God will send you into a storm in order to test your faith. First Peter talks all about that. And yet, not only do you not face that storm alone, He will come to you in the midst of that storm. He is at work, and He wants you to trust Him. And the amazing thing about God is when He tests us, He always wants us to pass. You ever had a teacher or a boss or someone in authority who you knew was testing you and they wanted you to fail? You know what that feels like. We all do. 
That is not your God. When God tests us, He always wants us to pass the test. He is the one who wants to strengthen us and meet us in that test, to pass that test, to be deepened in our trust of Him. When Satan tests us, he always wants us to fail. God tests us, always wants us to pass. So let's talk about Peter's response. How should Peter have responded? Because he's the one who's being profiled in this storm in in particular. Should he have remembered back to Matthew chapter 8? Because this is not the first storm he's been through with Jesus. Remember when we went through that story and they were crossing the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side? They were caught in that windstorm, and I referred to this earlier, and they thought they were literally going to die. They thought they were going to drown. Should he have remembered back to how Jesus responded in that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think there is wisdom in remembering past storms so that you can get through current ones. I was very deliberately looking at my journal that I keep every so often and thinking over the course of this last year and a half, a number of storms in our family and in my life, just like yours, and recounting and remembering and recalling, how did God meet me in those? Even when it felt like he wasn't doing anything at the time, how did God work in that? How did God reassure me of his presence? How was God testing me and deepening and refining my trust in him, my faith in him? Remembering past storms does help you get through current ones. Absolutely. But I think there's more here. Should Peter have kept his eyes on Jesus the entire time when he got out of that boat? Well, very clearly so. Because understandably, it says he looked at the wind, and you can't really see wind, so that infers that he looked at the waves being pushed by the wind and realized, I'm walking on water. Who does that? And that's when he begins to sink. It's when he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink and to give in to fear. I do think there's something very practical there for us. And Gary set the table for us this last week. We have this rationalism. We have this, at times, pessimism that we can default to where we begin to explain away the presence of God, the work of God, the things of God. It blinds us to what he's doing and how he's working because we rationalize, we reason, well, God can't work like that. People don't walk on water. I wonder if that was rolling through Peter's head with the fear. Hey, I'm walking on water. What? What am I doing? There's that rationalizing away that Peter, excuse me, that Gary talked about last week where we default to this cynicism or really to this unbelief where we just assume, oh, well, God can't work like that. I shouldn't be able to do this or this shouldn't be happening. So should he have taken his eyes off of Jesus? No, most certainly he should have kept them on Jesus. But I think there's even more here than that, and I think it's intrinsic in what Jesus says to Peter when he begins to sink. Should Peter have acted on what he already knew, on the faith he already had? And the answer, of course, is yeah, absolutely. Something I was challenged with as I was reading this story once again was that it's so easy to read this story and think, well, Peter's faith was deficient. He didn't have enough faith. I don't think that's true at all. I think by Jesus' response to him and legitimately asking, and we'll get to this in just a minute, why did you doubt? I think Peter had everything he needed to walk across that water and meet Jesus. 
It wasn't a deficiency of faith. He wasn't using the faith he already had. My friends, too many of you sell yourselves short in your journey with Jesus and in your spiritual maturity and depth with Jesus. There are so many times we think, I don't have the faith or I'm not sure if I can trust God for that. Yeah, you actually can. You have more faith, more depth of experience with the Lord than you give yourself credit for. And so many times in my life, it's not a lack of faith when I'm choosing to not trust God. It's because I'm not acting on what I already have. It's not a deficiency. It's not a lack of faith. It's not using what I got. And that certainly is the case here with Peter. He had all the faith he needed. He had everything he needed to gather the boat and walk on water because he actually did it for a bit. But he took his eyes off Jesus. And Jesus rightfully says, and this is not the first time we've heard this, is it? We heard this in Matthew chapter 8 in the first storm. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And again, this is just me, but as I enter the story here, I think, what was Jesus' tone like? Was he exasperated? Was he critical? And I, I honestly think it wasn't said in that tone. I think it was a legitimate question of, Peter, I am so for you. You so can do this. Why, why did you doubt? You have everything that you need. And you were doing it. Why did you take your eyes off of me? Why did you default to this rationalism, this realism, this really unbelief that, well, I can't be doing what I'm doing now. Well, why not? I think Jesus' tone was truly a tone of question. And again, my friends, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is what you do in the face of fear. Does not mean you're not afraid. Multiple examples in Scripture, Old Testament to New, of godly men and women who acted out their faith in the midst of great fear and uncertainty. Doesn't mean they weren't afraid. It means they chose to have faith in the face of fear. Faith, not the absence of fear, but what you do in the face of, in the face of it. I think that's absolutely example to us here. So, this begs the question, how is he looking for faith in you today? How is he asking you to trust him today? What does that look like for you? Once again, I know in a gathering of this size, of this number of us in the room, the number of you who are watching this online live or as a recording down the road, you don't know Jesus. You know a lot about him. But in your heart of hearts, you know he's not your God. And so there's a defining moment step that we all have to take in our spiritual journey at one point, and that is you have to decide to choose to follow Jesus, to invite him into your boat, so to speak. And you do that by receiving him, by asking him to come into your life because he wants to. He wants you to have right relationship with him, right relationship with other people, and you will find it in no other way and no other source except through knowing him as your Lord and Savior. But for a number of us, all of us really, our faith journey is a constant renewal of our willingness to trust and believe in this God. So once again, how is Jesus looking for faith in you?
today, right now. So the disciples rightfully recognize him for who he is, but so do the people. When they land on the other side of the shore, word goes out to the entire country, and this is in the way of saying the word goes out far and wide, and people came from everywhere just so they could touch the edge of his cloak because they recognized there was a power there. There was something there that they absolutely needed. And so they respond. Once again, have you? Are you? Are you responding to this God for who he really is? Because how you and I are living our lives tells what kind of a God we worship. We live in such a consumeristic, options-oriented culture that it's very, very easy in our spirituality, in knowing God and in living for him, to pick and choose with what we want to trust and obey him for. Many times, God is reduced to the cosmic divine advice giver where, you know, you can take or leave what you want. And what we often forget is that partial obedience is still disobedience. He's not the divine advice giver. Nor is he the cosmic genie whose entire mission is to make sure that you and I are comfortable and safe and everything going our way, and storms are okay for other people, but they're not okay for you and me. No, he's not the cosmic genie whose sole agenda is to give us whatever we want, whenever we want, how we want it. But he's also not the disappointed dad. For some of you, you have this record that plays in your head that somehow God is in love with a future version of you. Because if he really knew you, he would not love you. And he's not that kind of dad either. And for some of you, he's the absent father. He's not there when you need him. He doesn't come to you on your way, your terms, your timetable, how you would expect him to, not unlike the disciples. And in your heart of hearts, you've given up on him. Because when you needed him, he wasn't there for you, which isn't true either. None of these represent the true identity of this amazing God. And my friends, at the end of the day, when it gets down to the very basis, the very foundation of why we can trust him, we come back to the resurrection that we celebrated two days ago. Excuse me, two weeks ago. It was so epic for me, it just feels like two days ago. And many of you who are with us took one of these little rocks to remind you that the resurrection isn't a once a year thing, it's an everyday thing. And at the end of the day, no matter what kind of storm you're in, no matter how hard it is, no matter how disappointed you are with God, at the end of the day, you and I can trust a God who will die for us. Because this is the God who comes to us in the middle of the storm. We never go into a storm alone. If you know this God, ever. And so as our worship team comes and as we prepare to respond to what we've heard here this morning, last week after service, or rather in between services, I was talking to one of our crew here, 
And she has a very challenging, difficult cancer journey that she's in the middle of. And as I was talking with her, she was scheduled to have surgery this last week, and she did. And I know she was anxious about it. Who wouldn't be? I know there was some fear there. Yeah, that's completely understandable. But there was this quiet, centered assurance just by the way we talked about it. And again, doesn't mean she wasn't anxious or fearful or doing battle with those things. But here she had gone that Sunday and had picked up an elderly friend who didn't have a way to make it here and went out of her way to bring her here to be with her. So here's this, this person who is about to literally have a surgery that will deter- determine the length and longevity of her future life, and she's still thinking about other people. She's still serving someone else. And as we parted ways, I was struck by what she said. And she basically said, for me to paraphrase it, I am in the middle of a storm, and I'm scared. And yes, at times, I'm extremely anxious and fearful, but I am not alone. My friends, the same is true for you. This is the God who comes to you in a storm, maybe not on your terms, maybe not in your timing, maybe not the way you think he would, but he will come. about to sing, would you help us to trust you when it feels like we can't? To seek you when it feels like you're not there? To act on what you have given us when it doesn't feel sufficient? Lord, thank you that you are the Lord of the storm. You go with us into it. You walk with us through it. And you are faithful to the very end. So give us faith to actually believe that and live that. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And he is the way and the truth and the life. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Is he your way? Have you embraced his truth? Have you received his life? Because whether you find yourself in a storm now or in the future, you're never going to walk into that alone. He is the God who can be trusted. And every day is an opportunity once again to renew our trust in the promises and in the presence of this God. And so I hope that he is your God. And if he's not, make him your God by receiving him into your life. Let me pray his blessing over us as we prepare to go from here. Lord, we thank you that even though you don't always come to us, on our terms, in our timing, the way we think you should, we are never alone. Lord, for those of us who do know you, who have received you into our lives, you never leave us. You never forsake us. And you never abandon us in the middle of a storm, even though it feels like you do at times. You don't. And Lord, thank you that through the empowerment of your spirit, you have given us the ability to trust you, to have faith in you. Lord, would we use what you have given us? 
Would we believe you at what you say? Would we take you at your word? And then would we live our lives accordingly? You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. So as we go from here, would we make the choice to live that out in what we say and what we do in who we are? We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us, for meeting us here, for going with us now through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. So go and live for him. We'll look to see you next week. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.